morning, noon, and dinner. Where are my people at? Just not that, you know, that okay, I guess so. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I love breakfast. If I'm not getting paid for this endorsement, this is free, but Sierra's breakfast over uh, across from McDonald's on Williams Drive, if you live in Georgetown, if you haven't eaten at Sierra's, um, yeah, you, I mean, I'm not even sure you're a Texan at this point. I mean, you got to go. It's incredible. And I love the pancake plate. Now, here's the thing. When I, when I sit with people who have never watched me eat pancakes before, for, for them, they, they kind of have this, like, kind of look of sh uh, sh shock on their face, this awe look, because I, I like syrup a lot. Like, I want... I want every piece of the pancake to be touched in syrup. Like, I'm okay with a swimming pool of syrup that the pancake just goes down into. And, and so people will say, like, you, know, you, want, you want some pancakes with your syrup? And I'm like, no, it's fine. I just can't eat syrup with a spoon because that's not socially acceptable. That's why the pancake for, right? Some of you are, like, nodding. Some of you are disgusted. Some of you, though, you're not pancake people. Where are my coffee drinkers? Who drinks coffee? Okay, now let's be honest. If you've ordered something like that, that's not coffee. And some of, you are, some of you drink coffee like I eat pancakes. Your coffee's not even black anymore. It's a whole other color because you put sugar in it and you put cream in it and you put vanilla in it. And I would look at you and go, do you want a side of coffee with your creamer? When we went to New Orleans earlier this uh, summer with our senior mission trip, we go in, and if you guys have been on mission trips before, you know how we do shopping a lot of times. We'll go in, take the group, we get the list of all the things we need for the week, and we split everybody up into teams of three or four, and we go, go, and everybody's got four or five things to get. So I'm back at the register, and whoever was in charge of coffee, I'm not a coffee drinker, but some of them were. There were only nine of us on the trip. It was just graduated seniors. They come back, and they have this, this vanilla flavoring for coffee that was about this big. And as they, they come up to the cart, I'm trying to save money, and I'm like, you know, do they not have anything smaller? And they looked at me, and they were serious, and they went, oh, I don't know if this is going to be enough. I'm like, we're only here five days, and there's only nine of us, you know, and like, just go get the vanilla extract and just drink it. That's what you need to do. You know, that's, uh, some people like that. Now, as we started processing this uh, idea and topic of sadness, one of the things that made me think about it is life is somewhat like that. When you get to a point in your life where you're, you're wrestling with sadness, you're, you're in a low point, life can be bitter like a cup of coffee. Life can feel bland, meaningless, empty, like just a, a pancake, which is a piece of bread. And we're all, we talked about last week, we talked about happiness and joy. We're all after the happiness. We'd all like a, a little bit of syrup and cream and sugar in our lives when things are, are, are down. And so tonight, I wanted to just throw this statement out there, and then we're going to go back and look at it. I want you to hear me when I say this, especially if you're dealing with sadness. If you deal with sadness on a regular basis, Jesus makes the sadness sweeter. And I don't want you to walk out of here tonight thinking that by any means, Jesus is a magic wand that you wave Jesus at your sadness, and it all goes away. That Jesus is the magic pill that you can take and, and happiness shows up. We talked about that some last week. That Jesus said that, that the world's going to hate you. You're not always going to be happy. But Jesus does, as we journey with him, make the sadness sweeter. Problem with this discussion tonight, this talk, and we'll look at some verses in Psalm 42 in a moment, is, is sadness is, is, man, it's described as wide range of, of feelings. I mean, there, there's sadness that's circumstantial, kind of like happiness. And, you know, you, you've experienced this where something happens and it makes you sad 
for a brief period of time. Now, some of y'all know I've got my two little ones. I've got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. Emerson's my five-year-old. She started kindergarten last week. And so she, she came to us like around the first or second day of school, and she asked, she said, she said, now how many days, how many days do I go to school? And Amanda said, five. And she goes, how many days do I get off? And Amanda goes, two. And she looked at Amanda and she goes, that's not a lot. And we went, no, it's not. Welcome to the real world, five-year-old. That's how it works. So she goes to her first week of school, loves her school, been there, Rayleigh went to the same school, she knows all the teachers. Friday rolls around, it was Thursday or Friday, and Amanda's unpacking the bags, and she pulls out Emerson's lunchbox, and she opens it up, and the sandwich has one bite out of it, that's it, and the Go-Gurt is totally full, I mean, she's eating one bite. And so Amanda kind of calls her, and she's like, Emerson, you know, what, what happened? You only ate one bite of her sandwich, and she said, oh... Well, I, was, I had a hard time concentrating on my lunch because I was too busy crying because I missed you guys. <laughs> it's sad, but funny. It's uh, picture of me, she's just you know, sitting at the lunch table with all the kids around her, just tears streaming down her eye, you know, because she's not used to it. That, that's sadness. You know what? Yesterday, she came home and said, I didn't cry during lunch. We're high-fiving all around. It was momentary. It was, circ- it was circumstantial. It's gone. Probably never going to happen again. That's still sadness. There's another kind of sadness that's called grief. And, and moving from laughing to a real serious moment, where I said earlier, some of you are going to go to a funeral this week. And you're going not to experience sadness like that. You're going to experience a depth of sadness. It's grieving, and it is, it's heavy and it's not going to go away just like that. You're not going to come back the next day more than likely and be like, oh, everything's fine and dandy again. It won't last forever, but it's going to last longer than just a momentary circumstance, and it is going to be a deep grief. You're going to ache in your heart to different types of sadness. And then you've got depression. I said sadness is circumstantial. Depression many times isn't circumstantial. A person who's dealing with depression can't point to, this is why I'm sad. They feel and they go, I don't know why I'm sad. I don't know why I don't want to get up. I don't know why everything seems blah. And that's a serious deal. Do you know that in between 5 and 10% of adults right now are suffering from major depression? That uh, 25% of adults, one out of four of you at some point in your life, because you will be adults, one out of four of you are going to deal with major depression at some point during your life. 15% of people right now are taking some sort of medication to deal with depression. And, and, and one organization has, has said this, that cardiovascular disease is the number one uh, disability that people face. The depression is number two, and they expect in the next 10 years, your generation... When you become adults, you'll become the number one disability that people suffer from or wrestle with. It's a big deal. And so, I mean, this, this spectrum of all kinds of sadness, from grief to depression to just kind of momentary sadness. And I was wrestling kind of what direction do we go because we, we only have a few minutes to talk tonight. And, and, and part of me really want to talk about depression because it's such a big deal. But as I prayed about it, I just felt like God saying, no, just you're going to take a 30,000-foot bird's-eye view, talk about sadness, because some of the things we'll talk about here in, in momentarily is going, to, is going to address depression, and some's going to address grieving, some's going to address just kind of circumstantial sadness. And so we're going to go up there, but I want to say before we do that if you wrestle with depression, you, you, need, to, you need to get help. That's why I brought Josh here, simply so you could see a face, so you go, hey, I could go talk to that person. He's not a stranger. I've seen him before. Depression is a big deal. 
I say that because I've seen it affect lives. I had a high school student in my first youth ministry whose dad was clinically depressed. He was on medication. When he took the medication, everything went well. And he'd get to the point where he was going, man, life is going so well, I don't need the medication anymore. I'm not suffering from depression. And he'd get rid of the medication, and he'd start spiraling down, not knowing, and he'd end up taking his own life. That's heavy stuff. And I know depression's a big deal. Not a lot of people know this. I know it because I wrestle with it. Not in major ways. I don't, I don't wrestle with it where I take medication. I know I can sense it when it comes on, and I can identify it so it's not out of control. But I wrestle with it some. And, I, and my wife has looked into things because she, she gets concerned, as a wife would. And what she's found out and discovered is that people that do what I do, that serve in ministry, have a much higher chance of being depressed than other people. Uh, I mean, than a lot of other people. I'm sure there's other uh, jobs that have high depression rates too. But it's because Sunday or Wednesday always comes. It's always running. And so you're, you're running at this high level, getting ready for something all the time. And there's never, we completed the project and we're done. Even when summer rolls around and collide stops for a while, there's all these other things. And so you're just always chasing the very next thing. And you start to live on adrenaline. When the adrenaline crashes, you're done. So I want you to hear this. Depression isn't something that you, can, you need to be embarrassed about. I'll tell you, I, I wrestle with it. I'm not ashamed to tell you that. It's, just, it's, a, it's a fact of life. But if you wrestle with it, you've got to do something about it. You, for so many people, they won't go talk to somebody because they're embarrassed. For some reason, they feel like if they suffer from depression, they're broken for some reason. And it's not, you just need to go talk through some things. For some people that are wrestling with depression, it's nothing more than a chemical imbalance in their brain. And if, if you had a chemical imbalance in your pancreas and your pancreas didn't put out enough insulin for your body and you had diabetes, you wouldn't like be so embarrassed that you're like, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm just, I'm just going gonna, gonna to lose a foot, you know. I'm going to let the diabetes run its course because I don't want anybody to know that I have diabetes because my pancreas isn't doing what it's supposed to do. That's what you'd say. You go, my pancreas, it's, it's, it's screwed up. I take some medicine, I get some insulin shots, and everything works fine. If your thyroid wasn't working right and there was some medication that would help you do that, you wouldn't be embarrassed by that. You'd be taking a pill at lunch, and people would go, what are you taking a pill for? And you go, i got a thyroid issue, and, and this helps regulate it. And, and you'd be fine with it. But for some of you that have a chemical imbalance in your brain, your brain just doesn't produce serotonin, which is uh, the chemical that brings kind of a euphoric feeling. It doesn't produce it in the, in the mouth of the can. You, you go, I don't want to go tell anybody that I, I have depression. It's okay. If, if you're wrestling with it, go get help. Don't live life. It's sad. Get the help that you can get. We're not going to talk about depression. I know I talked about it more than I planned on it. I want to talk about sadness, though, from a big picture view. And I want you to go to Psalm chapter 42, because we're, we're not going to read the whole psalm. We're going to read a couple of verses. But I want you to see what the psalmist says. We don't know who wrote it. It says it's written by the sons of Korah. So it was Korah's kids. And, and, and this was a song they sang. And here's what they sang, chapter 42, verse 1. If you've got your Bible, read along with me. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? That captured me, verse 3. My tears have been my food both day and night. Like my five-year-old sitting at the lunch table. The tears, that's all I've got time for. That's what I'm, I'm feasting on because I'm in such a bad, bad place. 
He also has this relational thing that's caused sadness. He's, he knows that people are coming to him that, that, that probably were friends. Maybe they were enemies, but they're like, yeah, well, where's your God now? And, and he doesn't sense God speaking to him. He says, my soul, I'm thirsting after you, God, and, and you seem far away. And everyone else around me notices it. And they're even laughing. They're going, yeah, where's God? Th I thought this walk with God was supposed to be great. Well, where is he now? Because your life sucks. You know? And he's going, man, it's, I'm crying day and night. I don't have anybody around me that's supporting me. I, I, I don't even feel like God is close. If you've ever felt like that, this was a song that people sung because it resonated with them. And what I love about the Bible is you can read through the Bible, and there's all kinds of great heroes of the faith throughout the Bible, but what we find out is that they were real people like you and me, and they've pinned it, and God allowed it to get into, into his word. They pinned these things that said, you know what? I'm wrestling with sadness. I've, I, I, I'm depressed. Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote an entire book called Lamentations. It's a lament. It's a, it's a funeral dirge. It, it's him sad. Jeremiah is so sad that people refer to him as the weeping prophet because of the way he writes and things that happened in his life. Real heroes that had hard times, real people that were spiritually strong, that God said, hey, you're going to be a prophet. You're going to uh, write things that are going to be read by people 2,000 years later. You're, you're a person that's walking with me. But in real life, you're sad, struggling, low point. And I love that, that we don't have to come in here and put a face, a fake face on. You should be able to come in tonight if you're grieving and go, guys, I don't even feel like laughing tonight because I'm hurting deep down. And we ought to be able to pray for you. We ought to not make you feel like, oh, if I come to Clyde, I've got to put on a smiley face. We ought to be able to come if you need to cry, cry. If you need to rejoice, rejoice. But the people that are gathered around you, they're sad that you come and encourage and that you, you cheer on and you pray for them because they're someplace that either you have been or you will be or both. And I love that about the Scripture that it's very real, it's not fake. What I also love about the Scripture is this. In almost every psalm you read, or almost every time you read somebody that's talking about this journey that they're on, this sadness, this depression, the grieving that they're wrestling with, almost every time it turns like it does in verse 11. Verse 11, the beginning of it, still is kind of the woe is me. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? But look at how he closes this psalm. He says, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If you look at Psalm 43, you don't have it if you're using the U version, but if you're just looking in the Bible, Psalm 43 is a sad psalm as well. But if you look down in verse 5, it ends with the same thing. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Even though these people who walked with God went through valleys and they experienced sadness and they had difficult times, they always came back and said, but you know what? There's light at the end of the tunnel. And so tonight I want to close us out with this as we're, as we're talking about sadness. I want to talk about some things that you can do that can help turn your sadness into sweetness. It can take those dark times, not magically. I'm not giving you a three-point three thing. If you do point one, two, and three, your sadness will go away. But it's going to help you walk alongside Jesus who makes the sadness sweeter, and it's going to begin the process of bringing you out of some sadness. And I'm not discounting people who are wrestling with depression. This is going to be a part of the journey. You also need to go talk to somebody and get some help. But the answers to that are found in this verse. And so we're going to look at them. Look at the first thing he says. He says, hope in God. So the first thing we do is we focus on hope. When you have hope in something, it changes your perspective. Let me give you an example. Um, 
We'll talk about some other people in a second, so let's not boo and hiss. But Texas Longhorn fans, there's some in here, right? It's been a rough few years, right? I mean, I'm a Longhorn fan. Um, that's my team, and it's been tough wrestling through some years. And so um, when, and we'll come back to that in a second. Hold on for a second. Hold on. We'll come back to that a little early. Um, every time this year, football season's about to start, and I start to get excited about football, and I start reading these blogs about the Longhorns, and I read about uh, practices and scrimmages, and I love Charlie Strong, and, and I read all these things, and what happens is I get to this point in the year, and I'm like, you know what? I think, I think we could win 10 games. I mean, I think, I think this is our year, and I totally forget that just a few months ago, I sat in the stands of the orange-white game, and I watched the starting quarterback overthrow one of his receivers so far that he hit a kid in the head in the stands. I forget about that. But afterwards, the coach made him run back across the sidelines and go apologize to the kid. He was on the center of the field, drops back, throws a pass so far out of bounds, some kid's like eating his cotton candy, minding his own business, and pow, hitting the head of the football. And all of a sudden, I forget about that because I'm like, this is the year. We're going to do it. If, 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 if our receivers are allowed to run into the stands to catch passes, then that'll be, this will be the year. But it's, it's like hope is here. You got the picture, some of you guys that are Aggie fans. You had Johnny Manziel a few years ago. God did fantastic through him. I mean, incredible college football player. Now, he gets drafted a few years ago by the Cleveland Browns. Now, the Cleveland Browns are, are like the epitome of sadness. First of all, they're living in Cleveland. I mean, anybody ever know someone that was like, hey, where do you want a vacation this year? How about Cleveland? No, I, I mean, it's like Cleveland is not a, a, a destination city. Not only do they live in Cleveland, their team name is the Browns. Not, not the Dolphins, not, not a cute dolphin animal, not a Viking with a sword that chases people. They're a color. That's all they are. They're a color. And, and not even a good one. I mean, look at the jersey, brown and orange. I don't, there's like no ladies that like were out here tonight, like going to school today, like, ooh, brown and orange, that looked good today. I mean, they're from Cleveland, they're the Browns, and they've never been to the Super Bowl. I mean, it's like, it's like the sad sack team. In fact, it's so bad living in Cleveland that a few years back, you guys are too young to remember this, the Cleveland Browns up and moved and they left the city. They'd never been to a Super Bowl. They up and moved and left the city, and they went to Baltimore, and they became the Baltimore Ravens. And then the NFL let Cleveland have the franchise back, and they reinvented the Cleveland Browns. Well, when they left and went to Baltimore, they started going to Super Bowls. But then Cleveland, they still can't. I mean, it's like, so when Johnny Manziel, Heisman Trophy winner, award-winning, record-setting quarterback gets drafted, these jerseys start flying off the racks. Because why? Hope. It's Hope. Because the people who lived in sadness, the people who said, you know what, our team is just going to be bad. We're going to just wear bags over our head and cut out eyes and go watch the games. We don't want anybody to know that we're actually here watching this team. All of a sudden, they had hope. And Romans 8.28, the Bible says this, that it's God, that God is at work towards the good of those who are called according to his purpose. You know what that means? That you're in a stage in your life where you are wrestling through something bad and sadness is sinking in. You, you are... You're in a dark time. 
You've got some relationships like the writer of Psalm 42, some people that, that are not on your side. There's no one encouraging you. You know, it's Romans 8, 28 says that God, if you're a believer, if you're following Jesus, that God is at work in your life right now, working those bad things towards your good. That's hope. And when you're wrestling with sadness and you're wrestling with some dark times in your life, the psalmist says this, hope in God. Remember that he's at work in you. Remember that there's better days coming. Remember the cloud's going to pass. And all of a sudden we remember that. We go, hey, I got God on my side. The creator of the universe is working to my good right now. All of a sudden, the sadness begins to shake a little bit. Because Jesus makes the sadness a bit sweeter. He also says this in that same verse, the end of verse 11. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. So the second thing you can do if you're wrestling with sadness is to worship. And that sounds a little bit counterintuitive. If you're sad, especially if you're blaming God for it, if you're sad, the last thing you probably want to do is go, oh, I want to sing to God. But you know what you'll find? At many funerals that you'll go to, they'll sing hymns. Because worship changes your perspective. And that doesn't just mean singing. If you're wrestling with sadness, you maybe need to get into the Word and start reading just you and God, looking at His Word and letting it penetrate your soul. Or maybe it's praying. Praying is a form of worship. Just talking to God about the things that, that you're dealing with. God wants to know. I mean, he already knows, but he wants to hear it from you. It's okay to say, God, I'm mad at you. God, this has happened in my life, and I'm angry about it. And you could have done something about it, and you didn't. And I'm a little perturbed right now. At you. And I, I, honestly, I don't even really want to talk to you. The only reason why I'm doing this is because point number two said worship, and he said pray, so I'm giving it a shot. It's okay to do that. And what happens is we begin to spend time with God through maybe worship and singing, through getting into the Word, through talking with Him and listening. We begin to hear Him speak back. He begins to speak into the darkness. He begins to speak into the sadness. And you start to believe the truth and understand the truth that Jesus makes the sadness sweeter because you realize He's walking alongside of you through those bad times ready to come to your side. Hope. God's at work. Worship. Maybe that's praying, spending time singing, whatever it means. Here's the third thing. He says this. Oh, I lost my page. That wasn't the end. He says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The last thing is you remember your salvation. Remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, that this is not the end. The sadness, the hard times, the difficult times, the blues, they are going to end in 70 to 80 years, maybe sooner, and you're going to spend an eternity forever with God, which you were created to do. That this dark time, it's going to pass. Even if, you, even if you go through the dark time for 70 years, your entire life, there's heaven coming. That salvation. A couple years ago, I've talked about this a little bit. We got to go to Poland, some of our team, and um, some of the guys that have graduated before got to go to a city called Krakow. And when we were in Krakow, we went to a place called Auschwitz. And if you haven't gotten to that point in history, Auschwitz is one of the, the darkest, saddest places you'll ever walk into on this planet. Because Auschwitz was one of the concentration camps where the Germans killed over a million Jews during World War II. And they actually did it in the course of just a couple of years. It, didn't even, it didn't, wasn't enti the entire war. We walked, I can show you some pictures. You can actually go through, when you walk into Auschwitz, you can still walk in and see, this is how dark this place is. Those are the incinerators where they put bodies of Jews that they killed and burned them into ash. And you can walk into that room, and it's 
It's heavy. It's dark. The second time I was there, there were a group of Jewish people, and they were all gathered around 70 years after the fact, and they were wailing and lamenting and crying and experiencing deep, dark sadness because their grandparents and some of their parents had been there. The next picture is a room really just to the right. If you were in the incinerator room, this room sits right over here, and it's where you walk in. It's where they told the Jews that they were going to get a shower. And they would walk in, and they'd send them all in, and they'd close the door, and instead of water coming out of the spigot, cyanide gas would come out, and it would kill people. And they'd move them into that next room that you saw and burn the bodies. It's a dark place. You can walk in today, and you can see the barracks where the people they didn't kill lived. And they have bunk beds, and they're probably, the bunk bed's probably about from the half of this stage over. And there's three levels of them, and they'd put 12 to 15 people on a bunk this size, and all they had was hay to keep them warm. No bathroom facilities, no nothing. So if you were stacked on top and you had to go to the bathroom, you just went. And if you were down below, you lived in that kind of environment. It's a terrible place. No hope, no happiness. People starved to death. People were worked to death. But at one point during the war, when the war began to uh, turn, you can see that in the next picture, the Soviet army came and they liberated the camp. There were about 7,000 people left when the Soviet army got there. And they freed them. It's hard for me to imagine what it would be like there. Because those people had lost so much and had suffered through so much, and they, make, they, they went through what makes our darkness and our sad times probably pale in comparison to what many of them went through. And yet I just wonder what it was like when they woke up and they realized that there were no more German soldiers there, no one yelling, no more threatening, and in fact, salvation was coming to the gates. Soldiers were coming that were going to take them back home that they had survived the Holocaust. People were going to take them back to the family that had survived, that they were going to live to see another day. They were going to eat and shower and have a home. I know there was probably some sadness, but you know what I think? On that day, there was probably a lot of joy because salvation showed up. Everything changed. And salvation's coming if you're a believer. No matter how dark your day is, Jesus is coming back. And if he doesn't come back before you die, you'll go be with him forever. And we realize that, that we have hope. God's working to our good now. We can worship even though we're in dark times. And that no matter how bad it gets, we have salvation. It's coming. A couple weeks ago, I guess, maybe a few months, an earthquake hit Nepal and killed lots of people. In fact, it hit on a Sunday, I believe, and, or whatever day that they were worshiping there. I'm assuming it's Sunday. And a lot of Christians, a lot of people who were worshiping in Hindu temples died when the earthquake collapsed buildings on top of them. And there was a lady. Her name was Mali Tamang. And when the earthquake came, it collapsed the building. It killed her husband. It killed her sister. And it killed three other of her family members. One week later, all the news crews were in Nepal doing the stories on the earthquake. One week later, this lady who lost her family at church during the earthquake is back at church, and she's worshiping seven days later. And so it caught the, 
news crew's attention that these people who died in the church have come back and they've gathered around and they're not mourning, they're worshiping and they're singing. And so they begin to ask questions, they interviewed her. And she said this, and I wrote it down because I wanted to read it. I didn't want to try to remember it and mess it up. When they were talking to her about her loss and they were talking to her about how could you still worship, how could you find joy in the midst of the sadness, she said this, quote, we cannot decide our future or what happens to us. But even after the world, we will be with God. Even after the world, even after all the sadness, the darkness, the blues, we will be with God. Hope, worship, and salvation. Heavy stuff. Next week, we're going to talk about heavy stuff as well. For the next few series, but, but it's important stuff. And what I'm hoping that you'll do this week, if you're wrestling with sadness, remember the end of Psalm 42, the end of Psalm 43. You're talking to some friends who are grieving this week, point them towards hope. Point them towards worship. Let them understand that salvation changes everything. They don't have to live in sadness forever. We're going to pray. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing another song, and then I'm going to close this out with a, a few words. Let me pray for us while they come. God, God, it has been a rough week, a rough few days for some of us in here. God, as we're wrestling with sadness and grief and some of us with depression, God, I just pray that we would go back to Psalm 42, 43, Romans 8, 28. God, that, that you would help us to see that this emotion isn't, we're not all alone. Other people in the room face it. The great men and women of the faith in our Bible wrestled with it. But they remembered to find hope in you. They look to their salvation. God, I pray that you'd help us to do the same. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.